Welcome to Heaven and Earth. I'm joined with Jerry Shepard, and we are here to talk about the book of Leviticus. Jerry has a uh, commentary on route that I'm sure we'll talk about and can maybe put a pre-order link if it's a pre-order time when this releases. As we get going, Jerry, do you mind just kind of introducing yourself in a way that seems appropriate for the conversation? Uh, sure. Um, as uh, Wyatt has said, I'm, uh, my name is Jerry Shepard. I'm originally from the U.S., from North Carolina. I uh, went to uh, Westminster Seminary and got my master's and PhD there. And then um, while I was working on the dissertation stage, uh, got gainful employment at uh, what was called at that point uh, Edmonton Baptist Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, later became Taylor Seminary in the, in the 2000s. And I've been here uh, at Taylor uh, teaching in the area of uh, Old Testament, hermeneutics, um, Hebrew, and biblical theology for, uh, this is, I'm finishing up my 28th year now. 28 years at one place. Yeah. So I think in an academic world, that's actually pretty long, isn't it? Um, I guess it depends. Uh, I, 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 I didn't see any reason to go anywhere else. Um, I'm also pretty well uh, tied uh, to the Edmonton area. We have three grown children and we have three uh, grandchildren, all living in the area. I have no interest in going anywhere else. <laughs> well, and you, you kind of know this, but my family's all basically in the Edmonton area. Um, so Alberta, Edmonton as well. So. And that's, I, I, I grew up in Alberta, at least in part. Okay. So uh, North, where in North Carolina are you from? Uh, I was born uh, in Greensboro. Okay. And um, had a just a wonderful time living there. And in fact, at one point, um, given all the various factors that you can weigh in, uh, Greensboro was, uh, was uh, chosen to be the greatest place in the U.S. to live. Uh, hmm. by the uh, by the JC organization um, and then um, so I'm so live in Greensboro all my life until I went to uh, Bible College which was in Winston-Salem so only about 30 miles away and um, and then uh, did uh, some work there and after college um, did some odd kind of things in that area and eventually decided to go to uh, a seminary and went to Westminster. And I went there for the express purpose of going into Old Testament studies. And, so uh, um, Westminster, Philadelphia, right? Right. And uh, who did you study with? Because was this like the 80s, 90s? What, what decade was this? was the, um, I, I was there in the Philadelphia area for, from, from 1983 to 1993. Okay. And um, stellar cast of uh, profs there. Um, I'm sure you've heard of most of them. Uh, Tremper Longman, of course, mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the third. Uh, yes, Tremper Longman the third, uh, one of the the deans of Old Testament scholarship in, in North America. Um, I learned Hebrew and also worked with uh, J. Allen Groves, um, and uh, his big claim to fame, I guess, in terms of academics, is that he was the major driver behind what's behind what's called the Westminster Hebrew Computer Project. And uh, so if you buy uh, Accordance or Logos, 
the morphological text in that program is the result of uh, his of his um, direction. Yeah, the WHS tagging, right? Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, uh, uh, one of my uh, favorite pros there was uh, Ray Dillard, um, uh, just a mm. fantastic mm. scholar, teacher, uh, gentleman. Uh, and like an Old uh, Testament yeah. introduction or something, right? Uh, yeah, well, Tremper and uh, Ray uh, did a co-wrote an introduction. Um, he also wrote the Chronicles commentary for the Word uh, series and, and some, mm -hmm. a lot of other stuff, but those are probably the two most uh, uh, popular uh, uh, things that he has written probably. And, and then at one point I was, uh, um, during my time there, uh, Bruce Waltke was also uh, there. Oh, in fact, cool. I started off my doctoral studies under uh, Bruce Walkey. And then about the time I got to the dissertation stage, uh, he left to go back to Regent uh, College. Uh, so I ended up uh, finishing uh, the PhD under uh, Trimber. Interesting. So um, you've now done some work in Leviticus. You're doing a, a commentary on it. Now I read it last night. Um, a bit fresh in my mind. So I, so I have, there's a number of things we could start with. Maybe just one kind of a fun question is, sure. so in North America and Canada, we're living under um, numerous types of restrictions on our life. I think it's interesting that we struggle with these. I suspect most of us, given if it was just today, would struggle to live under the Levitical outlines for life. I mean, there's... Mm -hmm it tells you what food you can and cannot eat, what fish you can and cannot eat, or, or sea creatures more accurately, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, it tells you like how to treat skin disease or mildew in a house. If you touch anything dead or anything that is polluted, you're unclean and can't participate in worship, at least for a short time. Mm -hmm. And if you remain unclean for a certain reason, you not only can't participate in worship, like you have to go outside of the camp and stay there maybe mm -hmm. indefinitely or until mm -hmm. you've somehow become clean again yes and um so there's all sorts of things where like your your kind of personal liberty and ability to do what you want is deeply constrained by the patterns of life outlined in well not just leviticus but i suppose exodus leviticus and numbers in particular but leviticus mostly i would say um, I think is Leviticus, does it also have clothing in there too? There's different kinds of clothing you can wear and you can't mix them or is that numbers? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. So maybe just talk about like just generally about that because I think a lot of us have some semblance of our freedoms being constrained. Why was it so constrained in the book of Leviticus? Like what, why? <laughs> um, I, I think that, that one of the things, uh, and, we, and we may get to talk about some of this a little bit more later in the context of sacrifice, but one of the um, important things about Leviticus is that there's a, a ritual uh, symbolic world against which that book is set and which against life in ancient Israel was set. And that ritual uh, symbolic world um, entailed uh, the idea that, that there was a connection between um, impurity, sin, and death. And whenever you came in, came up, whenever you put yourself in a place where you um, contacted impurity, 
even though you may not have sinned in doing that, nevertheless, you've still, um, your life is now intersected with the world of death and sin. And therefore, there is a purification that needs to, needs, needs to be put in place. Um, and in fact, um, you know, one of the interesting um, things in this regard is that whole area um, of uh, the woman um, who gives birth to a child and has to offer a purification offering. Uh, or um, I think the better, uh, I, I still retain this term in my commentary, I retain the term sin offering for it uh, as opposed to purification offering. Now, she hasn't sinned in giving birth to a child. Uh, uh, in, in fact, some of the ancient rabbis tried to come up with all kinds of different ways in which he actually had sinned. But I think it's safe to say that that in the process of giving birth to a child, she has not sinned, but because of the loss of blood uh, and because of coming into contact with the realm of death, and you think back you know, to thousands of years ago, um, the mortality rate for, for women you know, giving birth to a child was much higher than it is in our uh, more modern uh, medical society. So she's come into contact with that realm, and because she has, she needs to offer this sin offering um, it's for purification for her, but it's also called a sin offering because she's come into contact with that realm of like impurity and sin and death. So that's the kind of things that stand uh, stand behind this. And and um, just to just to uh, give a, a shameless plug here, uh, I um, have a blog called the Recapitulator, and one of the things we might do when you put this up is just to give some links uh, because early on last year when this stuff set in around March or April, I was asked to address that and address this whole COVID thing in the light of, of, um, of Leviticus. And I so I wrote uh, three or four articles uh, on that and covering all kinds of things such as, you know, why it was so important. Uh, did God send the COVID crisis? Uh, uh, things like that. So. Well, so I was actually going to ask you about uh, the offering the woman has to do because yeah, it is translated as a sin offering. I can't remember the Hebrew word. It's like chat or something like that. Chatat, yeah. Chatat, okay. And um, and so uh, you can translate it a number of ways. You've retained sin offering. And by the way, if you're just listening to this, if you read the beginning part of Leviticus, I think in the first few chapters, their sin offerings are listed there as well. It's the same word. So you, you'd be consistent throughout. And yet you're, you're telling me, and I think it makes sense, that it's not so much of a, an individual person's uh, demerit of sin, but rather they're, they're contaminated by pollutants of some sort. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe, maybe my question is, why do we keep the word sin offering then? Or is it the case that maybe we need to kind of re redefine our understanding of the word sin, at least according to the book of Leviticus? Um, yeah, good, good question there. Um, in, in my commentary on Leviticus, I retained uh, those traditional names for two reasons. First of all, the commentary is, is based, or the story of God commentary series in which the commentary I, I wrote appears, is based on the NIV text uh, 2011. Mm -hmm. And uh, the 2011 NIV still retains those traditional names. Uh, 
burnt offering, grain offering, fellowship offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. And so to avoid confusing the reader, I, I retained those traditional titles. But I also did it by conviction uh, because I, I do think that even though we refer to it as a pure, even though much of modern scholarship says it should be called a purification offering, um, I think we lose something by simply focusing in on purification and not realizing that connection to sin. Um, and we also lose the wordplay, I think, going on in the Hebrew at the same time. And in fact, um, one of the things I point out is that uh, one of the uh, modern, uh, very um, academic uh, technical commentaries uh, written on Leviticus in the last uh, few years, uh, is still in process, but it's written by James Watt, James Watts. And um, he argues that we should retain that term sin offering just for those, for those very reasons. So, so I agree with him on that. And I think it's better to retain that just so that we know that in the back of the minds of the, of the, of the priests and the Levites who were handling all this um, material and manipulating the blood and performing atonement, uh, in their minds, they have this sin, death, impurity connection working uh, in the background. So that's a good, um, something camp on there. So you said sin, death, purity. Yeah, right, right. Now, just as someone who is maybe thinking of New Testament categories, I know that that's not necessarily what you always need to do, but sin is and death and holiness or purity are pretty big deals in the New Testament. So yes. if I think of the book of Levitic, uh, Hebrews, for example, it seems different than how Paul describes atonement. Not contradictory, that's not my point, but different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In that, uh, often you have the idea of sprinkling and blood and purification happening. Uh, then after the purification happens, Christ sits down at the right hand of God. <clears throat> seems like Hebrews is getting the idiom pretty directly from Leviticus. Yes. So if, if you could, like, maybe, like, tell me how those things, like, as you mentioned, they relate. So how do death, purity, and sin relate, at least in the book of Leviticus, then maybe more broadly, if you have some sort of bigger picture thoughts? Uh, well, uh, again, first of all, just that, that basic idea that, that, um, uh, there is this sin impurity connection. The reason there is impurity in the world is because there's sin in the world. The reason we have impurity is because of sin. And they both connect up with the idea of death. Um, sin results in death. Um, um, when we come to the, to the New Testament, um, I think it's important to recognize that those impurity that impurity concept is still retained. It's retained spiritually. So you've got a, a, a kind of a, a trend, a, 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 a kind of a, a transferal from the physical to the spiritual that takes place. But the physical has not been lost either. And um, of recently, there have been just a, a number of uh, scholars uh, who have argued quite strongly that when we come to uh, the Gospels, for example, and Jesus is, is um, healing people who have 
contracted some kind of skin disease or they have an issue of blood or some kind of hemorrhaging, uh, uh, hemorrhaging such as you have in, described in, in Leviticus, that when Jesus interacts with those people, he doesn't end, he doesn't cancel the impurity system. He doesn't do away with it. He heals the person who's impure. And even in the Gospels, that's that's a very, very huge uh, deal there. Um, um, uh, recently, uh, Matthew uh, Thiessen, who is a professor of Old Testament at um, McMaster uh, University, uh, has written a whole book on this area. It's, it's entitled Jesus and Jesus and Death. I forget the exact title now, um, but those are those words loom in the loom in the title: Jesus and the Realm of Death, something like that. And he has argued quite strongly that, that um, Jesus was an observant Jew. Uh, he did not come uh, for the purpose of um, setting aside the purity laws. Now that may eventually happen, but that was not his deal. He did not consider the impurity laws uh, or, or the laws about purity. He did not consider that as you sometimes read in the literature to be some kind of oppressive system that holds people down. Um, he didn't, he just, so he doesn't come to get, get rid of it. Uh, he comes to heal those who are impure. Very different um, a take, I think, on what Jesus is doing there. Uh, and, then, and then when you come to the book of Hebrews, uh, there's a much, I mean, there's, there's more that's taking place there as well. And I, I can say, say more about that, but maybe I'll, you were about to ask a question. Right well, I, I'm, so what comes to mind then is, look, if we are going to say impurity is linked to sin and impurity in the gospel books and really here in Leviticus is really tied to something we would call it sickness, right? Or disability. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, is Leviticus teaching that sickness and disability is sin? It's not teaching that it's a sin, but it is in some way connecting the two. In other words, a person who has a disability um, and this plays out uh, quite prominently, for example, in um, Leviticus 21 and 22, where you have a, a list of defects for a priest uh, who, uh, if they have one of these defects, they can't be a priest. That is, they can't enter into the realm of the holy. And again, it's not because they've, they've sinned, but it's because they have a defect that has now uh, caused them to come into contact with the realm of sin and death. And because of that, um, again, it's that ritual symbolic background uh, to the book. Now, I think those things do in fact uh, change when we come to the New Testament. Um, but at least in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the world of Leviticus, that's the reason for it. The pre a, a potential priest is not sinful because they have a defect. But nevertheless, they can't fulfill their role in that ritual symbolic system. Yeah, and maybe another way to look at it um, is, so if I look at um, a woman who has, has a child, she has uh, seven days where basically she's impure. After that, she enters into blood purity for 33 days, or I guess technically, depending on if it's a male or female child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think any, as you know, I don't think anyone's saying that she's sinning right. and yet through, you know, water and blood, all this kind of process, 
she is connected to the sphere of death and sin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, maybe one way to look at it is, is uh, and maybe, actually, well, let me ask you the question instead of me trying to say what it looks like. Is this because blood is connected to life? Leviticus, I think 19 makes that, that argument. Blood right? is, yes, yes. Uh, blood is connected to life, but the shedding of blood is connected to death. And because of that, it's, it's that whole idea of having gone down into, come in, you come into contact with, um, as it were, the underworld, I guess, to a certain extent, we could put it that way. Um, one, of the, one of the stories I tell in my commentary is about one of my professors when I was in Bible college. And he said something that I think that um, he did not realize how true it was that he said uh, uh, when he said it. Um, he was a, a Welsh, a Welshman. Uh, and had the accent, and so I, so I can't, I can't produce that accent in what he said, but um, he had a when all his classes, and it was primarily men in the classes, and he would say to us, "Okay, preacher boys, listen carefully. You show respect for your mothers, because don't forget, when your mother gave birth to you, she went down into the jaws of hell to do so." Now, now that's an interesting, you know, quaint way of, uh, uh, maybe archaic way of seeing it, but whether he realized it or not, he actually got the idea in Leviticus 12 right. Uh, in order for the mother to give birth, she has come into contact with that, with, with as, as, um, as, as, as best as you can express it in the Old Testament, she's come into contact with uh, the world of of, I'm not, I'm not sure if I want to say demons, but but she's come into contact with, with a world that is characterized by death and impurity and sinister um, forces, and therefore she has to have that purification offering, that sin offering. So, so I almost want to kind of push you on one aspect. I have sure. another question I'll ask you, but you're saying maybe not the realm of demons, and yet in chapter 16 and 17, you have uh, Azaz- Azazel. Yes. And yes. then the goat demon in chapter 17 is associated with, with the wilderness. And my reading of Leviticus, my understanding rather, is that the further you get from the, the tabernacle, the closer you are to, to death, essentially, or unclean. Right. right? So yes. if the demons, the goat demon, or demons, I can't remember. Is it plural or singular? I can't remember. Whatever, the um, goat demons, let's just say, yes. are in the wilderness that's where death is there's a real sense that when you're experiencing or close to death you're nearer the, the demonic right in yes fear or yeah. whatever you want to call yeah. it yeah yeah exactly um a couple of things i could say there first of all um one of the points you'll you'll often find made in commentaries in leviticus is that there's been a kind of a transformation in in how sacrifice works and in other civilizations Quite often, the sacrifice had a had what's known as a um, as an apotre, uh, apo, I, can't, I can't remember. I can't say the word now. An apotreahery, that is, it was not so much pointed toward uh, deities as it was pointed toward demons. Um, by offering a sacrifice, you were warding off the demonic. Now that takes on a different character in, in the biblical text. Uh, we're not dealing with demons here, we're dealing with the one God of Israel. 
Uh, and yet that one God of Israel is, is, a, is a dangerous God, uh, just like, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis says about. Uh, um, well, yeah, yeah. And so um, that there is there is either actual or potential wrath there that the sacrifice is is dealing with. Now, when we come to uh, what you mentioned with regards to um, Leviticus uh, 16 and 17, Leviticus 17 refers to the to the goat demons, and that's because, interestingly, at at the very same time as the Israelites were involved in the ritual system of sacrifice spelled out in Leviticus, they were also being idolatrous. I mean, we have an example of that, for example, with the golden calf. And uh, we have example of it in Joshua, where Joshua uh, is speaking to the Israelites who have had at least a, a somewhat glorious experience of conquering the promised uh, land and in the conquest. And, and yet he, in Joshua 24, he, he tells them, um, okay, you need to get rid of all the all the gods you are worshiping, whether whether it's the gods on the other side of the river or on this side, you need to get rid of them. Well, that's interesting. They would keep up that idolatrous worship along with this. So Leviticus, well, Leviticus they're, they're warned against uh, passing their children through to Moloch. Yes, exactly. Moloch. That, yeah, that comes through as well. Um, so um, as this, as the way this um the way this comes into contact with the um, the Day of Atonement, I believe, is that um, you know there there are several theories as to what the what the scapegoat is, and um, I don't I want, I'm not going to go into all of them here, but uh, I think uh, I, I, I'm pretty much persuaded by the idea that we have two goats talked about in Leviticus 16, one for Yahweh. And that's the one that sacrificed. And then one for Azazel, who probably should be thought of as a goat demon uh, in the wilderness. And that the goat for Azazel, in essence, what happens is that after the sacrifice has taken place and the sins have been dealt with in that regard, now they're all placed on this goat and the goat is sent out to the wilderness to return the sins back to where they came from in the first place. So it kind of portrays Azazel as the, the major force behind all um, impurity and sin that the Israelites are coming into contact with. You know, I don't know if this is connected, just, just a resonance popped in my mind that when Christ, the sin bearer dies on the cross, he's understood to descend to Hades to hell, the place of death. And uh, anyways, I don't know if there's a resonance that's actually useful. It's just interesting to me that you kind of see a similar thing in the the, Yom, uh, the day of uh, the day of atonement, which is Yom Kippur in, in Hebrew. Um, uh, anyways, in the back of my mind. Okay, so you have these two goats. One is for Yahweh, and that would be to propitiate him. To okay, yeah. and 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 to achieve. It also achieves purification for for the tabernacle and or temple. Right. Um, then you have a goat for Azazel, and that is to is this the one where the priest puts his hand on the head of the, that goat? Right. And then you might think there's some sort of symbolic transference 
happening. Yes. Yeah. I think um, uh, yesterday I was, I was looking at someone um, and I heard it said that basically on the Day of Atonement, you have, it's almost like smog, a smog of pollution. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of cleansed out on the Day of Atonement, it leaves the, uh, the tabernacle is cast into the wilderness. And I guess mm-hmm. that would be on the, the, the uh, Azazel goat. You, you also have a bull, right? So the bull is, is sacrificed as well for the priest. Is that correct? Or am I, or am I mis... Oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. So there's, there's sin offerings and burnt offerings that, that are offered that day. Um, so the priest's sins have to be atoned for as well as the congregation. And, and so what I so what I think happens there is is again that the the uh, the sin and the burnt offerings and the burnt offering was a propitiatory sacrifice. Uh, it was it was for the purpose of again averting the wrath of the deity and, and securing his favor. So that so they all kind of work together there. And then those and then those sins for which that first goat and or bull is sacrificed are now placed on the mm. uh, so-called scapegoat and removed. So right. uh, those two things kind of work uh, work together. Yeah, so I, I see two, two he-goats, one ram, and one bull. Yes. It's actually a quite complicated uh, thing to work out in terms of the actual yeah, what happened. chronological structure and order that happens that day. So let me ask um, you that. I mean, that's a good, that's an interesting observation. So when I read the Torah in particular, so mm-hmm. more or less actually the end of Exodus and the rest of the books uh, uh, through numbers, I don't really see a comprehensive outlining of things. I, I, I see almost like whatever they, they found to be theologically or liturgically relevant included, but there's so much missing, as you noted, in terms of like what actually happens. <laughs> How do they actually yeah. do the thing here? So um, to me, that suggested that we should read this more like a theology work rather than like naked history. And the reason why is because it seems to include mainly this, whatever was salient to them. And it excludes so many things that we'd be curious about were it to be sort of like merely a manual for practice. Like presumably yeah. they had an oral tradition and maybe other documents for to figure out some of the the details, is that kind of mm-hmm. does that match up with your experience? I, I think that works pretty well. Um, the 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 um, one of the ancient names for the book uh, that was um, fastened on by some of the rabbis was this is a this is the book of the priests. It's it's a manual for them as to how they are to carry out the carry out the sacrifices and the rituals and the blood manipulation and all that. And yet, and yet so interestingly, there are details that just escape us. Um, uh, and maybe they are taken for granted uh, by, the, by the writers or, uh, or by the editors as they put the material together. But there are places where we just don't have a, a, a complete understanding of what's happening. Um, one example, for, for instance, would be the fellowship offering. Uh, in Leviticus uh, 3, you have the fellowship offering being described. Mm-hmm. And you would think you would have an explanation there. 
but it's not till about three or four chapters later that we are actually told uh, that this is an offering that the people who bring it can eat of. Uh, they can dine on what they brought that mm-hmm. day. It's not mentioned in Leviticus 3, so you have to read later on and you sort of wonder, well, why isn't it there in chapter 3? Uh, but it uh, but it isn't. Um, and then, uh, I, I guess, additionally, a little bit different emphasis here. Um, and this is, this is why uh, there are uh, so many differences between commentaries, is that there is a there are just a, a, a ton of places where you could wish that the writer told us, okay, why? Why not? Uh, what does the sacrifice actually accomplish? Why are these foods clean and these foods aren't clean? And you know, you know, you know, it'd be great to have an explanation, but there isn't one. So uh, at, at least it keeps us who uh, those of us who were in the field. Um, it, it keeps us um, involved, um, making money writing uh, commentaries and articles and dissertations, trying to figure out what it is. Well, it's one of the interesting things that I think most of us assume we know everything, and then when you read a book like Leviticus, you're like, I barely like. There's there's so much we don't know that happens. Like, yes. Like, yeah. Did everyone actually come once? Like, what, what were the festivals actually like? How do the sacrifices actually like? How do people know about it? Or even for me, like, okay, so you're unclean, so you leave the camp. So, so where are you living throughout the camp? And then also, if you become clean, you're expected to offer livestock. So where, mm-hmm. so where are you keeping livestock? Right. I mean, you could have a bird too, but like or whatever the the exception is but like so it's like so are you if you're outside the camp does it just mean that you're like in the suburbs you know what i mean like (laughs) well it it wouldn't be a very uh pleasant uh sort of neighborhood at that point um i think that one of the things that perhaps lies behind this is that there there were very few isolated families um uh, that they were you know they you weren't just a family, but you belonged to a to a tribe and a clan. And and uh, if you were isolated, you know there were other people in the clan uh, who would take care of your affairs for you and and, and keep that livestock for you, etc. So uh, even the but, amount of sacrifices that are implied, it seems like in a rural community, like you'd run out of animals, <laughs> like livestock, or <laughs> you'd not run out. Well, possibly, like it just it does seem like a lot of killing. It, 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 it does. And um, there have been all kinds of suggestions as to whether or not some of these figures are on the hyperbole side. Um, uh, are, are they exaggerated somewhat? Uh, uh, even as it has been suggested that the numbers for the population in the Exodus, uh, th- those might be uh, either hyper, uh, hyperbolic, exaggerated, or there's some kind of different computational system is being used uh, uh, with regards to um, what counts. Maybe the word thousand doesn't mean thousand. Maybe, maybe it means a, a small uh, clan or a tribe. Right. right. Well, I, that's an interesting, I'm not really even, but that would make sense. Uh, I could say that been an argument. It's, it is, it's just so interesting to me. Now, we, we did talk about being outside the camp. Uh, you can be in the camp and then there's a tabernacle in the camp. So, it does seem to be outlaying something like sacred space or 
polluted space or pollution coming into sacred space. Today, I think, at least if we live in North America, nobody would think like this. Well, sorry, no one born in Canada would probably, maybe the US. Uh, If I go to church or if I'm at my neighbor's, I I don't think there's anything like sacred, polluted Mm -hmm. space. And yet Leviticus, I think very explicitly does view the world as full of, uh, as someone has said, like, uh, I think many people probably have miasma, the sort of yeah. invisible pollutants that are connected to sin, sure, but really ritual impurity, because it's not so much uh, individual sin, like I could touch something impure, and then that's commuted to me. Mm-hmm. Or I could touch, I think, and if I remember right, something, I think it is right, something pure, and then be purified from touching that thing. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded, by the way, when that uh, I think a woman touches the hem of Jesus's garment. Yes. And then yeah. there's actually a transference and Jesus is like, I felt my my power go. Right. But it was a, it was a purifying thing. And you think of him as the uh, the mobile tabernacle. It's interesting. Oh, yes. Yes. But but nonetheless, let's go back to the sacred space idea. Um, so you, you, you're talking about the symbolic world. Do these symbols, uh, in fact, speak of something real? Or do they symbolize something merely metaphorical to help us understand sin and redemption? In other words, is the miasma something real <laughs> that attaches to us? Uh, yeah, well, a great question. And I'm not sure I have a definitive answer for it. I mean, it's theological, I know, so it's not yeah, quite, yeah, but... Yeah, I, I really think it's, it's more, um, more uh, ritually uh, symbolic. Um, uh, all kinds of things could have been 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 chosen to to fasten on as to what what is impure and what's not. Um, I think that part of what's involved here is, um, you know that 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 famous um, you know phrase from. Uh, from John Calvin, where he talks about how God has accommodated himself to our capacities. And he even goes so far as to say God uh, stoops down to us as if we were little children lisps to us. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that has to be understood here as well. Uh, Accommodations to the context in which uh, the Israelites lived. And um, there's, you know, there's no two ways around it. Um, Israel lived uh, in a in a context where other civilizations also had ritual, symbol, conceptions of impurity and purity. And I'm not trying to say that when God accommodates here, that that that's simply um, arbitrary. But I think that that God chose to reveal himself to a people in a context where these things mattered, and he used those those ideas of of ritual and symbol and purity and impurity and holy and versus profane. He used those categories that were already in existence, but those categories are in existence also because he is the Lord of history. And they were already present in the civilizations around because God oversaw that whole thing. Um, And so 
to speak as of whether these things are real or not, um, I think they are, they're real to, to the people who had to deal with them. I guess I, I could put it that way. Um, and and it, it, once you come up with this symbolic system, then it, then it makes a lot of sense in order to um, see the Israelites as, as, as responding to God as he has given them commands within that system. It does not necessarily mean that that system is going to hold forever and ever. Um, now, just, just to give you an, an example here, uh, you mentioned earlier the whole idea about two kinds of clothing. And for an awful long time, um, commentators said, what is so evil about putting two kinds of clothing together? Is, if, if I have a cotton polyester blend in my t-shirt, is, is that something awfully, that, all that horrible? And what uh, I think more recently uh, scholars have recognized is that the very thing that God tells the Israelites not to do is the very thing that God did do in the tabernacle and in the priestly clothing. Um, the tabernacle had curtains that were woven of two kinds of material. Uh, the priest clothing was as well. And so what's going on there? Well, it's this ritual symbolic world where the holiness of the tabernacle is not to be profaned by making it common everyday dress among the Israelites. Now, once you do away with that, with that kind of that that, that kind of ritual uh, symbolism, once that falls in the background, then those kinds of rules don't come down to us today. So we don't have that that kind of idea that. There are things that we do in our everyday lives that are reserved uh, for, or, or the things that we had to stay away from in our day, everyday lives that are reserved for some other realm. Uh, we don't have that, that concept here today. So if this richly symbolic world that is tied to the, to the cult or the, uh, you didn't use the word cult, to, to the ritual system, mm -hmm. um, if it's this this whole thing about profaning, polluting, being separate in the sense of dividing yourself and all that, there does seem to be a pretty massive change in the economy of the new covenant. Right. In particular, um, like in Acts ten, all things are clean. Jesus will teach. It's not what mm -hmm. it's not what from without, but what what comes from within that uh, reveals your hearts and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, so what in, in now, I think we've, a lot of people listening probably know the, the sin dealing effects, the cross, something at the cross, death, resurrection, ascension, whatever, however you want to tie that together, changes this ritual system, or at least the way in which pollutants work. It, can you make that connection? Is, is there a way to kind of think about what's new and different? Why Acts 10 is in the Bible where the, the uh, animals come on the, uh, not the carpet, that's the wrong word, the curtains, uh, three times. <laughs> yeah. And uh, all things are declared clean, like all things, right? Like shellfish, mm -hmm. pig, etc. What? Why are they clean? Like what cleanses them? 
Yeah. Um, I have not completely worked that out in my head by any means. Um, and 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 this is a this is a question that 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 I guess plagues uh, commentators who are working in, in in both testaments, both in Leviticus but also in the, in the New Testament. Um, the 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 best thing that I have really been come up with is that uh, there are lots of there are lots of continuities between the testaments, but there are also discontinuities, and those discontinuities are quite often accounted for because of a change in what makes up the people of God. So you, you, you go from a theocracy in the Old Testament to um, a church in the New Testament that um, is not completely apolitical, but it's certainly in, 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 in its most, um, I guess, official type aspects is no longer um, a country, no longer a theocracy in terms of having its own borders and and uh, geographical boundaries, et cetera. It now, is a, it now is a pilgrim wandering people of God in the world. And at least to some extent, um, these things change in the New Testament to accommodate the idea that we are now taking this gospel in a very, very intentional way to the world of the Gentiles. Uh, there was some of that in the Old Testament, but, but not like you have in the New. Well, as we kind of um, work towards the, uh, the end of our conversation, can I ask you just like a few um, questions that are maybe to kind of like in, in fast order, just to kind of just hear your sure. basic thoughts? Sure. Um, Nadab and Abihu, what do they do wrong? Uh, good question. Uh, I uh, there there are about a dozen different uh, things that have been mentioned in the commentaries as to what they did wrong. Uh, I tend to fasten on the idea that that they used um, uh, uh, a, a different kind of uh, formula uh, for the incense. Um, uh, they, they 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 profaned the tabernacle by entering in with incense that was that was not the the, the, the right form the right concoction. Um, uh, in chapter 24, there's 12 loaves and there's a lot of things going into these 12 loaves. Um, what's the deal with the 12 loaves? <laughs> like why, why are, I mean, I understand that there are 12 tribes, but like what, what is the symbolism inside the tabernacle? Why are they they're focused on so much? Like what, what's the big deal of 12 loaves? Uh, well, I think I, I think you're right. Uh, the, part of that is the fact that this this is a a community contribution. Uh, the uh, community offered the oil for the for the lamps, um, and and they bring the the bread uh, for the loaves. So I think that's that's part of the reason for for the twelve. That raises another issue, by the way, uh, because at least in theory, these loaves are uh, they're on the table, the bread of the presence. It's food for God. And that raises a whole um, whole category, not just of the loaves, but of course of the sacrifices. And you bring these sacrifices and is, is it food for God? Does he eat? Does he consume? Uh, the same thing is, is true of the bread. And um, what, I, what actually happens for the most part is with these sacrifices, the priests are the ones who 
who end up eating uh, whatever edible portions are, are, are left. And they, as it were, um, they, they, are the, they are the imago dei, they are the imitatio dei. They, they, mm-hmm. they represent God when they, when they eat the food, the sacrifices and, and the bread. Do you think it was the rookie priest who had to eat the stale bread? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, they had uh, to work their way up. In Leviticus 26, is this a, a unique covenant being described, or is it just part of the Mosaic covenant made with Israel? Um, well, I, I think Leviticus 26 corresponds pretty well to what you have in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, all the curses that come against um, the people. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, since you raised that, that issue in Deut- uh, Leviticus 26, one of the things that I do in, in my commentary, and I, I take my um, impetus here uh, from uh, Ephraim Radner, uh, who, uh, who teaches at uh, Wycliffe uh, College on the U of T campus. And um, he um, very intriguingly suggests that we can go through all of the curses in Leviticus 26 and understand them as culminating in uh, what Paul says in Corinthians about Christ becoming a curse for us. And that we should read that chapter um, in the light of Christ's passion. And so he uh, very uh, tantalizingly suggests Leviticus 26 ought to be a Holy Week reading. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of the things I do in my commentary is, is I, that I take those curses that are laid out and try to show how each one of them has a, has a resonance, has a mirror in Christ's uh, own sufferings. In uh, the book of Revelation, incense is identified as the prayer of the saints going up to heaven. Mm-hmm. Is it the same in Leviticus? What is, what's incense doing in, in, Levitical, in Leviticus? Well, certainly it's, it's making that, that, that connection, um, as well as the sacrifices, as well as the grain offerings, which have their, their, their odors, odors or their aromas. Uh, I think the, um, the incense uh, plays a role in establishing a relationship um, between God and the people. It's a pleasing aroma for him. Mm-hmm. By the way, one of, um, uh, along with that whole idea of the incense, um, I think one of the interesting metaphors that the tabernacle system brings uh, is the idea, first of all, the tabernacle is where God dwells. And when the priest goes into the tabernacle, and, and not just the high priest, but also the other priests, their duties are to um, make sure there's bread on the table, the bread of the presence. They have to keep the candlestick burning, the lights on the, on the candelabra, and they have to uh, keep the incense. They had to have that aroma. So um, in, in a very real way, when you think of the priests, um, their role in the tabernacle is that of uh, God's valets. Um, they keep the bread on the table, they keep the lights going, they keep the aromatherapy going, and all of that together uh, makes the tabernacle a place where God can um, be welcomed among the people. So they used essential oils. Essential oils, that's right, yes, yes. Um, 
And maybe I've actually used the wrong essential oil. I used an inferior. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, you got used the wrong one. Um, last question. So purifying agents are fire, water, blood, and oil. What do each symbolize? Oh, if, if uh, they do. Yeah, I I I don't know. Um, certainly, the you know the, the, the blood is representative of, of life. You know, life that has been not just life, but life that has been poured out, uh, uh, that has been shed. Um, water ha- uh, plays a role in all uh, ancient uh, civilizations. As a, uh, I mean, naturally, I guess as a pl- something Unseen. you cleaned up in. Yeah, yeah. Fire. Uh, that's another very um, interesting one. Uh, fire uh, purifies, it burns the dross away. Um, by the way, let me just mention this. Um, you, you, you might not have originally thought this, but uh, have you heard of um, Catherine uh, Sonderager? Um, theologian at uh, Virginia Theological Seminary. And um, in her the second volume of uh, a series of volumes that she is producing on uh, theology. In the second volume of her series, uh, she spends about 150 pages in the book of Leviticus, dealing with the sacrificial system and the fire that comes from God and that returns back to him. And um, she actually um, situates the doctrine of the Trinity in Israelites' sacrificial system. Hmm. And she does it um, not by focusing on the persons. So as, as, as Fred Sanders says, um, uh, you know, one of the premier Trinitarian theologians of, of our day, as Fred Sanders says, in what Sondreger does, she doesn't necessarily count one, two, three. She doesn't come, necessarily come up with three persons, but she comes up with the, with the processions. And that and says the sacrificial system, the fire that comes from God and consumes the sacrifices and then returns to him as the 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 uh, the burnt offering, the the, the fragrant aroma uh, to him, that sets the groundwork for the doctrine of the Trinity. So it's a fascinating suggestion, and I haven't done it justice by in what I just explained, but um, interesting thing she does there. Yeah, I don't have that uh, second. I have the first volume, not the second. Um, now I want to read it uh, yeah. more, I suppose. So I think that's helpful. It's a good place to kind of end. But I want to, uh, as we end, ask you, what are, well, tell me about your commentary, like when it comes out and all that kind of, what, what sure. it's part of, other publications you have, and then maybe like two or three recommendations uh, on the book of Leviticus to help people kind of, you know, the Bible itself, obviously, but like <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> works that can help you understand what's being said, like commentaries or special works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, the, the commentary appears in the Story of God commentary mm-hmm. series coming out uh, from Zondervan. And uh, there have been a number of volumes that have already come out, uh, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Uh, Trimper Longman is the editor uh, for, the, for the series. And each commentary, uh, as it goes through the, the various passages, deals with three things. Uh, first of all, you set the passage that you're looking at in the context of, of the f- narrative flow of the Bible. In other words, we're dealing here with the story of God. And so how does each passage contribute to this 
grand narrative that we have. Um, and that also then relates to what you do later on in the, in the, in the more application part of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, the passage, because we're not so much asking the question, what does this passage have to do with me? But what does it have to do with God's story and how do we fit uh, into that story? So you, you uh, set each passage in the context of the grand narrative of scripture, as well as the ancient Near East. Then secondly, you take time in the, on the passage to explain what the passage is all about and just give a running commentary. But then um, a, a great deal of attention was encouraged for us and, and, and I welcomed it very much to spend uh, the major part of our time looking at how that passage then um, anticipates what we have going on in the rest of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the gospel, and how that passage has application for the 21st century uh, church, 21st century uh, Christian, 21st century uh, society. Uh, and so that's that was the way the it's constructed. Um, um, so the commentary that I've written um, follows that that structure laid out and and uh, I'm not sure, uh, but percentage-wise, I think I spent most of my time in that third category, uh, how these things um, are realized in the New Testament. Uh, the commentary comes out in, uh, in uh, July. Uh, and uh, like I said, other volumes have come out. And then uh, just, just recently, the most recent volume to come out is uh, Christopher Wright's commentary on Exodus. And I'm reading through it now. It's just a uh, sheer delight uh, to read. He's such a good writer and so insightful, um, and really brings out uh, the the uh, the narrative that that lays behind uh, the text. One of the things that I think is so important about Leviticus, by the way, is that uh, I really see. Um, uh, I, I taught a class in the midst of writing the commentary on Leviticus. And one of the things that I told my class was that um, that I part of my goal in the class was to persuade them that Leviticus is the most important book uh, they will ever read. Um, most important book of the Bible, most important book they will ever read. And one of the things that really um, emphasizes that is that when you look at the book of Leviticus, um, Basically, it covers um, a one-month period of instruction in ancient Israel, and uh, you think of of the of the Pentateuch. A full book is taken up uh, with just these instructions. Um, in fact, when you come when you come to Exodus 19, Exodus 19 through Numbers 10. That huge chunk, 40% of the Pentateuch, is taken up with just one year. And that's how important uh, that, that material is in, in the Torah. So uh, anyway, um, uh, you asked about other things I've done. I wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes uh, for the uh, Expositor's Bible Commentary, Rise Edition. And then aside from that, I've written a number of articles for the... Um, the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, and also some articles uh, for the uh, uh, Baker uh, Illustrated uh, Bible uh, Dictionary.
And um, so those are the things I've been involved in. Is there one other book that maybe you haven't written but really benefited from when you're uh, studying Leviticus that you could recommend? Oh, uh, there are just so many uh, good commentaries on Leviticus. Uh, first of all, I would simply say that uh, Gordon Wenham, uh, Jay Sklar, uh, Roy Gain, um, those are probably my favorite um, commentators on the book, and I would certainly recommend them. Um, Samuel Ballantyne wrote a book entitled The Torah's Vision of Worship, and um, just an, an outstanding book situating um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the ritual material uh, that you have in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, situating that material uh, in the context of the ancient Near East and in the context of the, of the entire Torah. Uh, and then uh, Trimper Longman, a very accessible book ent uh, entitled uh, Emmanuel in Our Place, uh, Seeing Christ in Old Testament Worship. Uh, so those are those are some background type uh, volumes that would be very beneficial for the reader to to access. Great. Well, thanks, Jerry. That was fun. Thanks for chatting with me about Leviticus and uh, from letting me learn from you. It was a good time. Well, I enjoyed uh, uh, talking with you as well. Thanks for all the questions and even the ones that uh, I have to think about some more. <laughs> <laughs>